It's good to see you. Those of you who have been walking in, we're having communion after a few minutes. If you didn't get the communion elements, please pick those up. For our Bible study, we're headed to the book of Ruth, Old Testament book of Ruth. If it helps you out, page 315. That doesn't help anybody else out unless you have the same Bible. But 315. Hey, here's a question I have for you. What do you normally find in the stories like a fairy tale? What are some of the common elements of the fairy tales that that are read to the kids? Oops, we are jumping ahead for some reason. Okay. What's the normal elements in fairy tales? What's that? Happy endings. A prince. What's that? Bad guy somewhere, someplace. Okay. Some problems. Anything else in fairy tales? What's that? There's usually a princess. Some suspense. For three-year-old kids, great suspense. Okay, but you're right. There's some of those elements. The Book of Ruth has all those things. It's interesting. Does the Book of Ruth have a prince? Okay, his name? Boaz. Does it have a princess? A character that comes out of poverty and rises to princesshood. Ruth, okay? Does it have any kind of, uh, you call it, suspense? Yes? It's going to start off. The chapter starts off with suspense. What else do we have there? The beautiful woman, she's in distress, she meets a prince, they fall in love, and they live happily ever after. She finds romance. That's why I've entitled this series that when we talk about it, is that the the story of Ruth is not fiction. Okay? It's fact. And so the title that we've talked about is the idea of romance and rescue or romance and the idea of redemption. There's romance in the story. It's a different romance than the way we would go about it, okay? But there's romance in the story. I was thinking, reading some stories about people who are seeking after romance. I read about an account, a true account of a gal. She's been dating this guy for a long period of time, and this guy just, you know, she's thinking he's the one, he's the one, but he doesn't, after several years, he still doesn't make the move. He still doesn't ask her. He's just, you know, and she hints at it, hints at it, hints at it, and he just doesn't want to make the commitment. So she ran an ad in the newspaper this was a few years back. She ran the ad, and it just said, husband wanted. And then she gave her phone number. The next day, she had over 100 phone calls from ladies who said, you can have mine. Okay, that, that's, you know, that, when we talk about romance, that's probably not a positive illustration. But when you talk about romance with the little kids, where do they normally get their ideas of romance? from mom and dad. So they were asking a bunch of kids about romance. What is true love? And they said, okay, how does true love happen? And here's what one little little kid said. said this, falling in love is like an avalanche. You got to run for your life. (laughs) Then a little girl added to it. She said this. She said, no one is sure how falling in love really happens. But I heard it has a lot to do with how you smell. Okay, that's not the expectation that any of us had for an answer. And kids have the funny answers. The book of Ruth does give us some ideas about romance and life, but like what normally happens in the area of falling in love, it can happen, there is also some, some trepidation. There's some difficulties. And like in so many of the fairy tales, there's a period of distress. There is something that starts off that's very tragic. That's the first chapter of the book of Ruth. So as we go 
into it this evening, we're going to start with a negative story. And we're going to start with a, a, a family that's a very famous family. The reason I say that is by, we, by the time we get to the end of the book, we're going to find out that this is the history of what famous person, his family heritage. King David, okay? And so when we go through the story, we have to keep its context. It's written sometime during the book of Judges. We'll come back to that in a few moments. And so it's happening in that period. It's written about a family a couple generations before King David, but it's written where David is mentioned, which tells us it was written in the lifetime of David. If he's being named, it's telling, you know, some of the... So why do you think they wrote the book? at the time of King David, why would they write a book about his family? It's King's history. Yeah. It makes perfect sense that they're writing a book and they're trying to help point out who David is, where did David come from. And so David would have encouraged it. This is his family story. And this would help establish some realities of his heritage. This would even tell some interesting aspects about his heritage. So the whole focus is more than anything like David in his normal writings. Let's talk about the goodness and the grace of God. Does the goodness and grace of God show up in the book of Ruth? In which character in particular? Okay. Boaz showing grace and goodness to Ruth. And why is that so amazing? Because Ruth is, she's not a Jew. Yeah, she's a Moabite. And so it's a tremendous story. Became very, very popular. That even by the New Testament era, this was a book that was being read customarily when you would celebrate the Feast of Pentecost. When your family would get together, they would read the book of Ruth. And that continues in many different Jewish uh, cultures even today. So it's a story of grace, redemption. It gives hope. And so it's a fantastic story. And so we can, we're going to get many lessons from it. Where I want to start tonight is very practical with you is something that you can walk away with and say, okay, this is going to help me this week. From the first chapter, I want you to learn these types of lessons very simply. That whenever you're making a major decision, some of you are making decisions, school, some of you making decisions, financing, some of you making decisions of what to buy, sell, where to move, major decision about marriage, for instance. When you're making major decisions, the first chapter gives us four different questions that we should always ask ourselves. Even hundreds of years later, it gives us four practical questions to answer that would help us in making wise decisions. Let's start off with question number one. Question number one would be, what does God's Word have to say about it? Here, let's get the scene, the story and how we go with it. It came to pass in the days when the judges were ruling... There was a famine in the land. There was a certain man of Bethlehem, Judah, who went to sojourn in the country of Moab. He, his wife, his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi. The name of his two sons, Malon and Kilion, Ephrathites from Bethlehem, Judah. And they came into the country of Moab and continued there. And Elimelech's and and Elimelech, Elimelech, yeah, now I'm tongue-tied. His name, Naomi's husband, died. And she was left with two sons. Right there, let's just pause. His, his failure was to ask this question. He should have asked this question. What does God's word say about it? And the reason I say that is this. God's word clearly indicated to the Jews back in that time that they were to stay in the promised land. 
They weren't supposed to be abdicating it. They weren't supposed to be leaving it. And so what happens here is he is going to not do what the Word of God says, but rather he is going to leave very clearly. The Bible says that the children of Israel may enjoy every man the inheritance from generation to generation of their fathers, and they shall keep themselves in their own inheritance. And so God's words would have said to him, don't leave this region. Don't get out of Israel. As well, God's word very clearly said that you are not to be going into the land of the Moabites. Because he even said, when I give you the land for an inheritance, I'm going to give you the land of the Canaanites. But God made it clear, but not the Moabites. I'm not going to give you that land. The, re- the land is located, if we were, this is, this is what we know of Israel. There is the Jordan River. The Moabites are going to be on the other side. Now, some of the tribes had property on the other side, but not the land of Moab. Moabites, the reason that he didn't want them to have contact with, is you know their history. They're from Lot and Lot's incestuous relationship with his daughters. They're from that heritage. As well, we know that they were very, very well known, or you know, a negative known, for what they did is they were the ones who did child sacrifice more than any other group. That they would sacrifice their own kids. And so God wanted to have nothing to do with those people. They are extremely vile people. They were the people that when the Jews were coming through the wilderness, they were one of the two tribes that said, we won't give you bread, we won't give you any water. In fact, they were the tribe that they hired Balaam to curse the Jews. And you know that story. Balaam tries to curse, and what happens? He blesses instead. But they were the ones that wanted, and then he encouraged them, I can't curse these people, but let me give you some advice. Do you remember what it was? Have your daughters marry their sons, and you'll draw them away. And so God, God looks at these people and said, this is a really vile group of people. They were the ones that in the book of Judges, on two different occasions, especially the one that you're most familiar with, when Gideon comes to be able to be the heroic figure, this is the group that was attacking at that time. And so their relationship was really bad. I didn't know this, but doing even more research in preparation for this, that when a Moabite would convert to Judaism, they were supposed to, if they converted as an entire family, if the male converted, his fam- his, himself and his offspring, though they wanted to be follow Jehovah, they were not allowed to be in the temple or tabernacle and participate, the men weren't, for the 10th generation. Nobody else had that restriction. What does that tell you about the Moabites? God's view of them was thumbs up, thumbs down. Okay, it's a thumbs down view. And so they were told, don't have anything, don't have much contact. If he had just read his Bible, he would have known. God's word says, I'm not supposed to leave Bethlehem and head over to the Moabites. So why do you do it? Why do you do it? Look in the beginning of the verses that we just read. Why did he be compelled to do it? There's going to be a famine that's going to come. Okay, well, let's, let's set the scene a little bit more. He is surrounded by carnality because we know this is in what carnal time period? Okay, the book of Judges. What do you know about the book of Judges? What, what's the description of people in the book, the Jews in the time of the book of Judges? And every man did that which was right Okay, so we know that it's a time period where the Jews are not, not strong in their faith. Rather, they're drifting all over the place. 
as well. We know this from the book of Judges. This man is from the town of... What's the, new, the closest city that's given? Of blank of Judah. Bethlehem. Bethlehem. So we look and say, okay, what is happening during the book of Judges with Bethlehem? And when we go to the book of Judges, we find out that what has happened, that they have priests there in Bethlehem. One of the priests that is known is a descendant of Moses, but he is hired and giving out his services for private priestly work. That's not the way it was supposed to work. They were supposed to be serving the entire group. So what does that tell you about the priest? What is his priority in life? Okay, it's money. It's money. And so he's prestige and money. And what the story does in Judges, telling us that this priest in Bethlehem, he gets a, well, if he's making money his, his guide for ministry, what could happen? And by the way, this did happen. If you're working for hire, what might influence you? More money. He gets a better job offer to become somebody else's priest. And so what happens is he leaves and he goes and works for somebody else. And the story is talking about how when he leaves, he's going to go and lead in sacrifice to idols. And what did the Bethlehemite people do? They get upset that he's leaving and that this guy who is helping to worship anybody, even some private gods, they're upset he's leaving. What should they have done? They should have you know, gotten rid of him a long time ago. So it gives you an indication of what is the community like. The community is not real sold out on Jehovah. The whole general nation is doing what is right. And the people in Bethlehem, they kind of corrupted their own faith anyway. And so here you have Elimelech living in the city of Bethlehem of Judah in a time period where they, he is surrounded by carnality. But then there's another reason why he's going to disobey the Word of God and go and do something that's contrary to the Word of God because he's living in difficult days. This is what happens to a lot of people. They make decisions based on circumstances, not the creed of the Word of God. And his difficulty, you pointed out, I think, is when you piped up and said there was a famine in the land. And the famine was really severe. Okay, so what happens is we know that it's really a bad famine because Bethlehem is called the house of bread. That's its, its literal Hebrew translation. It was the, to be the most fertile part of the whole region in there. It would be like the Ukraine to Russia. It would be, you know, the real centerpiece of prosperity and crops. And on top of that... There's one little village nearby around the area of Bethlehem that was even one of the most fruitful villages in this region called Bethlehem of Judah. Not just the town, but there's another name attached to Elimelech to define that he came from Bethlehem, but in particular, what village did he come from? He's called what? An Ephrathite. By the way, does that sound like another town near us? Ephrata. Ephrata really means this, a very fruitful place. And so the description given in this text is Elimelech lives in a land that's pretty prosperous, and he lives in the town that is the most prosperous of this entire region, but they're struck with a famine. And so it's got to be a bad one that it's hitting the real crop center of the entire region. It's a bad famine. 
It's, it's a difficult time. And uh, so you ask yourself, okay, why would the famine come? Well, you know your Old Testament. God promised to provide the early and the latter rains as long as the people did what? They obeyed. But if they didn't obey, there would be the drought. With the drought, there would be famine. What does famine tell you? Okay, there's a discipline from God. There's a consequence. They're getting, they're getting some chastisement here from God. Well, who wants to stay in a place of chastisement? What does our human nature say? Run, run. But what are we told in the book of Hebrews? That if we're being chastened at times, we should stay under and bring forth the peaceable fruit of righteousness. But why would Elimelech do that? Elimelech's not godly. He's not going by the word of God. And so he wants to provide and get away. And so there's a parallel in this account that some people will say this is part of what happened is the, the uh, time when the Midianites came and they were doing the attack. But I want you to catch the, the indication of how bad it is. You, you would name your kids' names based on circumstances. Back in Bible days. Today we don't do that. We just pick, you know, Whatever. Okay, whatever sounds good, or we make up names, or we just, you know, check the 100 most popular baby lists. Back in Bible days, you would name them about circumstances and about events. It was almost marking historically some of the things that were happening. Look at your footnotes. Do you have any marginal notes? He calls his kids Malon and Killian. Do you have any idea, any description in your Bible that helps you what their names mean? Anybody have something? Okay, sick? Okay. You're, it's, it's right there. Here's what it is. Malon means to be sick or weak or weakling. And Kilion, you're wasting away. Same idea of sickness. So you're naming your kids after the circumstances that you're living in. You and I might say depression, um, recession, you know, chaos, calamity. Well, that's what he did. So that gives you a little bit of an indication what that family was living in and so what was prompting them to leave. And Elimelech doesn't go by the word of God. He goes by circumstances. And he doesn't have the conviction to say, I will endure this. He looks in the cupboards and the cupboards are bare. Not only the cupboards, but the hayloft is bare. And so his thought is what many people... Oh, his thought is this thought. His thought is, is the idea that, hey, what I'm going to do is I'm going to go and I'm going to find someplace better. And he's not strong spiritually. I mean, think what he could have, could have been doing. He could have been thinking this area, the, or thinking these thoughts, the area's gone bad, God is no longer blessing, so I'm going to bail out of here. He could be thinking, my family is hungry, I need to do what's best for my family, which, by the way, is a legitimate concern. All of us have that type of concern. But still, at the same time, we can't violate the Word of God. What did Jesus say when he's told, hey, listen, you have to look at just the cupboard and the cupboard is bare. And so you need to feed yourself and take things into your own hand. And Jesus' response was, man shall not live by, but by the word of God. Okay, and so he doesn't do that. It's just pure circumstances. And you can imagine how this ungodly Jew, this carnal Jew was thinking, and this was processing, you know, and he could have easily justified it. Had there been times historically when the Jews left the promised land? There was one time historically. Do you remember when they left it as a whole and they hesitated? It was the time when there was a famine in the land 
And God had placed one of their own down into Egypt. And they were invited to come to Egypt. And granddad says, I don't think we should leave. But God said, it is okay to go at this moment. Anybody remember that story? Yeah. It's Jacob and his son Joseph down in Egypt. So it would have been easy to say, well, so-and-so did it, you know, several generations back, and they were allowed under special occasions and guiding, but not, not in this time. They have more revelation. They have more direction. And so God has made it clear. You stay in the land, but he wasn't going to do it. And he could have said this, I'm not going so far as to giving up Jehovah worship. I'm not going to sacrifice my kids like they do. I'm just going to go there for, you know, the food. I might not stay there real long, okay? And so Elimelech makes the choice. Now, the irony of it is, do do you have any footnote on what his name means? He was entitled this. His parents and the way he's supposed to live is, did anybody have a footnote? My God is king. That's Elimelech. Elimelech's name is basically, I'm going to follow God. And he didn't. He just doesn't do it. And so you have this story that starts off with, the lesson for you and I is, okay, let's examine the word of God. What does God's word tell us to do? But we are often like this. If If you had to put a caption over this picture, what would you put? The grass is... Have you ever seen that? Do cattle ever do this? Okay. Do people ever do this? Not us. We would never do that. And so you have this thing. What does God's word tell me? And so what that requires of us is take time to examine the word of God. To find out exactly what God's word says. What does God's word say about major things that we face? Does Does God's word talk about marriage? Yes. Does it talk about how you're supposed to work? Does it talk about the area of time management? Does it talk about how you raise your kids? Does it talk about finance? Does it tell you how to settle a conflict with other people? Does it tell you about indebtedness? The answer is yes, yes, yes. Dealing with elderly parents. Yes, yes, yes. The Word of God tells us. And so what we find is this. Let's examine the Word of God before we make major life decisions. Let's find out what it says, but not only learn it, but what do we want to be doing? We want to be living it, following it, and doing exactly what it says, and looking at its principles, its guide. Sometimes it may not give a specific command, but it'll give us principles. So our first question that we want to ask is, what does God's Word say about it? But then we need, we need to ask a second question that we need to, that's very important from this passage. Am I toying with temptation? Is my decision going to put me in a spot where I'm toying with temptation? Okay, so he's, he's told, don't go into Moab. And one of the reasons we know from the other passages that we already mentioned, if you get close to Moab, you might what? You might become like a Moabite. And what did, what did uh, Balak, yeah, what did Balak advise the Moabites to do with the Jews? May, intermarry. And so, you know, he says, okay, that's not going to happen. I know from my, from my history that, you know, the kids aren't supposed to be marrying these girls. I know from my history that I don't want to give up Jehovah worship. But I'm going to move in their land because the grass is greener. Okay, they've got food. 
They've got the crops, and I'll be able to be, you know, better then. Now, just, just a little bit of a tidbit. The name Moab is used in the book of Psalms for the washing pot. The pot that was used to clean the feet, would that be the same pot you would eat out of? Okay, after you wash somebody's feet and you got the water, what are you going to do with that water? You aren't going to use it? You aren't going to use it for cooking? No. It's basically what kind of a pot? A dirt pot. A trash can. And so Moab has this, God says, hey, you don't want to go there. It's a, it's a dump. It's a heap. Don't go there. But he's going to go there, and when he goes, he knows. He knows that this isn't going to be a good move. How do I know he knows? Because the passage tells us that when he traveled there, he set up some types of restrictions. He probably had in his mind Lot, the ancient ancestor of the Moabites. What did Lot do when he first moved there into the land of Sodom and Gomorrah? Where did he live? Outside the city. And then you find him moving closer and closer until where is he finally? He's inside the city. Well, Elimelech, he's going to set up some precautions, and the precautions are very clear in the text. It says this in the text, he went to sojourn. The Hebrew word for sojourn is live temporarily, just a very short time. Oh, that makes perfect sense. I'm not going to go there and live there much longer. I might be back next year. I might be back in six months. I'm just going through the season that we're suffering for the food. And I'll be back once, you know, once things you know, get better and we get some food. So he sojourns. That is the idea, temporarily moving there. Nothing, you know, going to live in a tent. I'm not going to take out rent on a house or put down something you know, for a year's lease. We're just going to go there. It's a temporary move. That's what he says at first. As well, it says in the text, they came to the countryside. It's very clear in the Hebrew that they, weren't, they didn't go into the city. They went into, the, into a private area. They went into the hills. They went into an area where they could keep a little bit of a distance. That makes perfect sense, okay, that he would do this because he knows he's not supposed to be there. And to justify it, we're not going to get right into the town, right into the heart of the thing. We're going to put up some barriers, some fences. Even though the grass is greener, I'll be careful, I'll be cautious, Okay. But in reality, he's toying with temptation, just like Lot did. Okay, so what happens is, Elimelech ends up staying much longer. From the text, do you have any, any indication in the text for the length of time that they're there, or at least the length of time? How so? What do you have? Okay, any other, any other specifics? Looking, look at your text, your Bible. Are there specifics given? Is there a time given? Ten years, what verse? In verse 4, that they're staying. But there's also the indication that, you know, the idea is they have little boys. How old do the boys get? They're old enough to take wives. So there's, a, there's an extended period of time. Whether he intended to stay there or not, what happened? He got there and stays. He stays longer than what he intended. Does that ever happen? That when people enter into something that is wrong, that it can hold them there longer than they ever intended? Does that ever happen? Yeah. Yeah. And so here in the story, it's long enough that time goes by, okay, and he's toyed with temptation, so what happens is he dies. We already read that. Both the sons take Moabite wives. 
Now, in the end, God's going to show grace in it. But at the point that it's happening, this is a violation of the Bible, what they were supposed to be doing. And so they take Moabite wives. They stay for at least 10 years. And what's interesting is when Naomi at the time says, I'm going back, she makes the comment that there's food back in Israel. So they know that Israel is already recovered for some time, and yet they had stayed. Is he toying with temptation? Am I toying in temptation with temptation if I make some decisions? Even though Elimelech knew this was not the best of decisions to make, and even though he took precautions, he did not seriously consider the weakness of the human nature. He didn't consider his own sinful nature, nor the sin nature of his family. Well, what does the Bible say? You know, take heed lest any man thinks he stands lest he fall. I, I, I don't know about you. I, I, could, I could do what Elimelech did very easily. I could become overconfident and say, I've got this covered. I won't let this happen to my family. And yet, if we toy with temptation, can our kids get caught up with stuff? that isn't good. Can we get caught up with stuff that isn't good? Oh, it's easy. It easily happens. And the whole point is this, is this is the way we often talk. We often say, it's just one time. It's just one little lie. It's one little cuss word. It's one little sip. It's one little click of the mouse. It's just one little thing, but I've got it under control. And sooner than later, all of a sudden we realize we don't control it. It controls us. That's what Romans 6 warns us about. That whoever we yield ourselves to, they become our master. Whether sin unto unrighteousness or unto purity or righteousness for the glory of God. And so there's a warning here. And so he doesn't ask the question. He should ask this third question. He should have asked this question. How will this decision affect others around me? And I've already uh, alluded to a lot of it. But let's ask this one question. How was his wife affected? How would she have been affected by her husband saying, let's move to this area? What would she have lost? She would have lost contact with her own family. Anything else that she would have needed? Friends. Okay? It's taking her outside of what culture and putting her in what type of a culture? Taking her out of what's supposed to be a godly culture. And we know they were carnal at the time. But she, was, she would be losing her Jewish culture and going into a Moabite culture. So she's losing community that has ethnic background, that at least what were they having, even if some of the people, a number of the people weren't following the Word of God, what could they get back in the Jewish community? The Word of God. The Word of God. And she's being taken away from that. She then ends up losing her husband. She becomes a single mom for whatever length of time. It doesn't really say how long a time it happens. And then she ends up losing both her boys. To the point that when she's all done, she is realizing that this is a really horrible situation. That I have been under the chastisement of God. Her husband put her in a spot 
where she was going to suffer the chastisement of the Lord. You say, well, how do you know that? Go down to verse 13. Notice her, uh, what she says as she talks. She says to her daughter-in-laws, would you tarry for my, the boys that I might have till they were grown? Would you stay, with, stay for them from having your own husbands? No, my daughters, for it grieves me much for your sakes that what? What does she say? The hand of the Lord is... Okay, jump down a little bit further towards the end of the chapter. Jump down to verse 21. She says, I went out full, and the Lord hath... Yeah, she doesn't say my husband. Who does she say has, has emptied me? The Lord. The Lord hath brought me home again empty. So why are you calling me Naomi? Seeing that the Lord hath what? testified against me, and the Almighty has what? She knows this is the hand of God. She's a, he put her in a spot where she could be chastened by God. You know what you, know what you want to do with Elimelech? Okay. But what did he do to his kids? What, what did he do for his kids? How were they affected by it? Were the boys affected positively or negatively? Negatively, we know that, okay? We know that they're taken away from their religious training. Now they have no assembly. They have no regular meeting place. They have no tabernacle by which to worship and to learn how to worship. It's gone. It's away from them. They're out of it. They're taken away from a religious culture. I know that it's a corrupted religious culture, but they don't have a chance. They're in a totally apostate culture, one that is, or in fact, there is something that some have observed. It's out of silence. But typically, the Jews would bury their loved ones back in the homeland. There's no indication that the boys even had that thought at all. And so they're losing, they suffer the loss of their dad. They get real close to Moabites because they, they marry them. Okay, which was forbidden in the scriptures. So then they marry these gals and they end up childless. Now, again, does God sovereignly at times create childness in some homes? The answer is yes. But typically, what is childlessness viewed as in Old Testament times? It's chastisement of God. It was typically viewed that way. And so as a result, they don't change and they die younger men. Okay, young enough that Naomi is saying, I might have more boys, but you shouldn't wait around until they get older. But So there's even that remote possibility. They're still young guys, and they lose their lives. And so there's tremendous impact that happens. So am I toying with temptation? We ask the question, how does this affect others around me? So let's, let's make it real. The job you take, could certain jobs that you might take that might make more income, could they hurt your family? But how? How would a job that you work as an adult hurt your family? Okay, if they're asking you to do things that are dishonest. Too many hours that they take you away from family. They put you in an environment that that influences you so that you lose your own godly standards. That's a, there's a possibility there. Got to ask, am I toying? If we choose this school or that school, We'll set up precautions. But if they're being inundated all the time with an anti-Bible, anti-Christian philosophy, don't underestimate the human nature. Be very careful. 
Here's one for you. What example, if, if we're challenged to just quit and give up, how does that affect our family? If we just quit. How does it, how does it affect family when in your handling finances, they learn from you and they hear your conversations about, we're just not going to pay the bill. We're not going to pay the bill that we made. See what they'll do about it. What does that tell your kids? What does that tell your kids about living up to your responsibilities? What what does it tell your kids when they know that you're lying about the accident, the report you're filling out about the accident? Because you're putting down there, oh yeah, this certain dent came with along with these other dents when we had an accident. But the kids know that 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 one dent came from their bike. And you're putting it in to get it taken care of as if, oh, it, it happened in a legitimate car accident that should be covered. Well, wh- how does it affect your kids if your priorities are all about pleasure, 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 buying, 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 but not about things of the Lord? How does this affect others around me? So, you know, if I go, and I was one of those, you know, as a baby Christian, when I got saved, it was the, one of the biggest challenges was, do I continue to do the partying? And it happened to be in May. And in May, you have a lot of graduation parties. And so I got saved, and the, the idea was, I can still go to the, the graduation parties, but I'll just set up precautions. I won't drink as much as I normally drank. And then in your middle of all that, that stuff, what so easily happens? You just, you just, yeah, you just fit in with the crowd. And so you keep on asking questions like, do I think skipping church more and more sends a good signal to my kids? Um, do you really think losing your temper, being hypercritical and cussing, you think it doesn't adversely affect the kids? Do you, do you think the activities and entertainments that you enjoy, are they building spiritual values in your kids or are they fostering a spiritual apathy? You know, there's some real challenging thoughts here that come from this story from this family. And we really have to come down to the question, and this isn't one part of it, but blending it all together, what's really important? The Word of God? Well, then I better go to the Word of God. What does it say? Am I toying with temptations? And that third question, how would this affect my family? Then we come to Naomi. Naomi, who was adversely affected by all of this. We already read her story. Basically, I came out full and I'm going back empty. She's really blowing it. Um, one commentator writing about his own church, Stephen Davey, write, writes about an instance that maybe, maybe you could highlight that this happens to people you know. He wrote this. He says, imagine in only five verses of a volume... Uh, in, in only five verses, you have a huge volume of sorrow and grief. And it all began with a look then a longing, then a leaving behind everything that once was dear. A newcomer to our church shared with me the tragic story of his renegade wife. She was an unlikely candidate for choosing a rebel lifestyle, a homeschool mother with nine kids, a committed wife of more than 25 years. One day she announced to her husband that she was leaving the family and her marriage for another man that she had met online. To the shock of both husband and children, the youngest child was six, the oldest was 24, she turned her back on her family and completely walked away from the Lord. She left her husband with these final words, 
I've given you and this family 20 years of my life. Now it's time for me. The trouble is she left everything behind except her guilty conscience. That would never leave her alone. She didn't make it too long with her wealthy new friend that she met online. And so after a period of time, she found somebody else. She started drinking along the way and stayed medicated all the day long to try to numb the searing pain of her guilt. Eight short years after leaving her family, she ended up dying of liver disease. Her stay in Moab, Moab was not quite as long as the runaway Elimelech and the rebel sons. When you leave the path of obedience, you invite pain to become your traveling companion. Isn't that interesting? I'll say that again. Read it again. When you leave the path of obedience, you invite pain to become your traveling companion. Greener grass often disguises greater grief. That's exactly what happened in this story. And then we come to the next section with this question that we're going to wrap up here. The question is, will this help me spiritually? Will this help me to grow spiritually? The rest of the chapter, and we're going to deal with it more the rest of the chapter next week when we talk about the widow's ways of grief. But here in this this passage, Naomi and her daughter-in-laws have to make a decision. What are we going to do? What are we going to do? They have options. Their option is to stay where they're at or to move back to Israel. And so they make the wise decision. Jewish mother should go back to Israel. That's very clear. We, we would all understand that. So she's inclined to go back to Israel, and she talks to the daughters, and she says, okay, what we're going to do is we're going to move back. And she talks to her daughter-in-laws, and she says, you guys can go back to your families. And Orpah decides to go back with her family, but Ruth says, whither you go, I will go. Okay, And your God shall become... Okay, that's, that's the Ruth and, and uh, Naomi conversation. And they decide to go back. Now, this isn't an easy decision. Because from a human point of view, going back to Israel, repenting and returning to the Lord, hey, this is going to be tough. They have no idea what the townspeople are going to say when they come back. Now, Ruth has no idea how they're going to accept her, a Moabite girl. They have no idea. They have no idea if there's going to become a mate if they're ever going to find love again, they have no idea. They know it's going to mean lots of changes. Okay, one of the changes is Naomi's going to have to admit we made a mistake. You know, what will people respond? How will they say? They, they're leaving things that have become familiar. For, for Ruth, it's lifetime familiarity. For Naomi, it's become familiar for at least 10 plus years. But we're going to have to do this. From a very simple point of view, that doesn't mean much to us because we can hop in a car and travel 60 miles in an hour. For them to walk without anything, 60 miles is going to be several days of destitute walking. That could mean life or death by the time they get back there. They got nothing. They're going to walk, get back to Israel. It's more important to be back in Israel. And so they're headed back, and one of the girls, Orpah, she does otherwise. So Ruth could have said, well, you know, my, my sister-in-law, my friend and family friend, she's, and they have no idea. They, they have no idea. Will Ruth be stoned? Will she be able to provide for an elderly woman? They just don't know. But you and I know the story, and this is where we want to just finish up now. We know that their best days are yet to come. When you get back to being right with the Lord, the best days are ahead. Which is really an interesting thought. So we, we just come and put these lessons together before the kids come and join us. Here we go. Famine in the will of God is far better than feasting outside of God's will. 
Famine is in the will of God is far better than feasting outside of God's will. Another lesson. Pursuing greener grass rather than the glory of God will lead to grief. Another lesson. Returning to God is always the right choice to make at any moment. It is always right to return to the Lord, to repent and make some changes. Always. Always. In fact, returning to God turns out far better than we think or imagine. Even when we're in the moment of, oh, if I have to confess and I have to make things right, it's going to be embarrassing. How will they respond? It's always better to return to righteousness and let God work out the details. Always. Let me add to this with this thought in mind. That's because God is always faithful to the promises that he makes to his people. The people who are right with him, he is, he is always faithful in his promises. So you and I have to bring to our minds, this is where we're at this evening, okay? The questions we should ask right now. Okay, we've given you questions to ask in the future, but questions ask right now. Will you be faithful to your promises to him? He's faithful to you, but will you be faithful to him? Or should we rephrase this? Have you been? Are you faithful to the promises that you've made, the commitments you set out to do? Whether it be when you got baptized or when you made commitments before the Lord in your vows or made commitments when you stood here and dedicated kids or your commitments when you said, hey, at camp, you said, I'm going to serve Jesus Christ. Are you faithful to those promises? Have you been? Very important to ask that. And I've, I want to wrap up with this. This Elimelech didn't live up to his name. Will you? What name does God give us? Christian? Christ-like ones? Children of God? Are we living up to what God has said? Is that the way we're living at this point? Well, bottom line is, if you've drifted away from the Lord, this is a good evening to return to the Lord. Before we do communion, where we celebrate His faithfulness, make sure you're right with the Lord. You can get right so quickly. Father, I pray, I want to thank you for these folk, for their attentiveness, for their listening to what we shared here this evening. And I pray that you would just bless now this portion of our service where we are now going to be thinking about you, thanking you for what you have done as we celebrate this communion service. Help it to be one that would honor you by our attitudes and our response. We pray this in Jesus' name.